You may be seated. It's good to see you. You might have some guests this morning. Maybe you're in town for Thanksgiving holiday, or maybe you're here this morning and you're expecting some family and friends to come in this week. We do look forward to, to seeing you this Tuesday night, and I look forward to that. It's always a fun time. Um, this morning, I, I want to speak uh, to what I, I believe is a is a text that is very timely for our day. Um, as I pray and, and put uh, sermon schedules before the elders, um, usually three, four, maybe probably about three months before the, the next year, you, you never know what, what, what God's going to do with, with certain texts and, and direct. And, and this morning is one of those texts that I've read before in life, I've taught it before in life, but, but today I think it's just a, a beautiful text that is timely for the day that we're in um, here in our country and in the context that we're in. There is fear, there is anger, there is uncertainty in our day, um, and that was the same in Paul's day as well for different reasons of sorts. In Paul's journey to Jerusalem, we see the church. Before he gets to Jerusalem, they have fear. There's some uncertainty over Paul's life, over his safety, over his his health, and what will happen to him in Jerusalem. At the hands of the religious party there, the Jews, and also the political forces as well. But Paul's heart and his eyes, his desire is set on the will of the Lord, that the will of the Lord would be done. And this morning, I want us to be fixed on that and to know that God's will for Paul, we're going to see this this morning, was that the gospel would go to the ends of the earth. And as Christians, that is our aim. That is what God so desires. We've seen that for over 11 months now in Acts 1-8. God says that Jesus will give you the disciples, the church. He will give you power to be what? To be the witnesses of Jesus Christ in the world. In your Jerusalem, in Judea, Samaria, and the remotest parts of the earth, God so longs for his disciples to go. Empowered. That was the will of God for Paul. It's the will of God for us. Even if it means suffering, as we will see today. So the fears and the uncertainty in our day should not dissuade us, should not shrink, cause us to shrink back in our witness, but instead should cause us to look to our citizenship in heaven and impact how we live in the here and now. And so I pray this morning that that we would bring any fear, maybe any uncertainty that we have this morning about the day we live in whatever issues you might even have in life personally, that you would bring them before the Lord. And you would say, Lord, I want your will to be done in my life. No matter what yesterday was like, but today I want to be about the will of the Lord. That was Paul's heart. I I pray today that's our heart. That's our desire. And so 
Let's look at this text this morning. I, I want to do this um, in, in three parts today. I, I want us to look at this text. I want us to see the will of God for not just Paul, but for us to bring the gospel to the ends of the earth and, and to what cost that may mean. And, and then I want us to look deep into the heart of the, the root problem of why Paul may suffer and, and what lied at the root cause of that and then close with, well, what's, what's the remedy? And what's interesting, point one and point three really come down to the same. And so let's look at it today in Acts 21, verse one through six. What do we find here? It's an emotional departure. We've, we've seen Paul's travels. And, and we get the continuation of kind of a, a travel log here of, of his journey and if you remember, he left Ephesus, as David preached last week, he, he left Ephesus, and it's this very emotional departure from the elders there. And we pick up the tail end of that as he will leave Ephesus. And look at what verse 1 says. When we had parted from them, from the elders in Ephesus, and had set sail, we ran a straight course to Cos, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patera. And having found a ship crossing over to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we came inside of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we kept sailing to Syria and landed at Tyre. For there the ship was to unload its cargo. After looking up the disciples, we stayed there seven days. They kept telling Paul through the Spirit not to set foot in Jerusalem. When our days there were ended, we left and started on our journey while they all, with wives and children, escorted us until we were out of the city. After kneeling down on the beach and praying, we said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship and they returned home again. Now I want us to see in Paul's travel log here, um, there's a purpose to his travels, and it's the gospel. Paul's so set on the gospel going to the ends of the earth, and that's why he's so set on going to Jerusalem. He believes that he must get to Jerusalem so that the gospel goes to the ends of the earth. It was an emotional departure from Ephesus, from the elders, and this will be the last time that they will see Paul. But he's fixed on one thing, the Lord's will, on going to Jerusalem. And you think about Paul's heart for those in Jerusalem. Who are there? The Jews. It's Paul's countrymen. It's those he loved. In fact, one of Paul's writings, he tells us that he would rather have his soul condemned to hell than to see his Jewish friends. He'd rather see them come to the gospel. That's how much he loved them. And so he wanted to go to Jerusalem to bring the gospel to them and to eventually go to Rome. And so they're in Tyre, we find here at the end of verse 6. They're there for seven days, and he finds these disciples there. And through the Spirit, the disciples tell them not to step foot, Paul, in Jerusalem. But you remember Paul last week. He says, I am bound by the Spirit. And he believed that he was to go to Jerusalem led by the Holy Spirit even if it meant that he would be in bonds and that he would face affliction. He believed it away to him, but he believed he must go. It's interesting when we see here, it's kind of a paradox from, from 
from last week, Paul's heart being led by the Spirit to go to Jerusalem, um, then the disciples stepping up here and saying, hey, listen, that the Spirit is telling us to, that you should not set foot in Jerusalem. We're going to see in just a second a warning from a prophet that comes. And so we kind of see this paradox. We, we maybe see some tension here between these disciples and Paul and what one believes God is saying and what another believes God is saying. I don't think there's necessarily tension, though. I think we see the heart of the church, and I think we also see the heart of Paul. And I think on one hand, you see warning, and then you see, on the other hand, Paul's leading by the Holy Spirit to go to Jerusalem. And I, and I don't think necessarily they're in competition. I think instead what we see here is, is they're both from God, and here's what I mean. A.T. Robertson says this. He says, duty for Paul called louder than warning. To Paul, even if both were the cause of God. And so, so the church is warning Paul, but this did not dissuade him any. I, I don't think the church is, is saying here, Paul, we don't want you to do God's will, right? That's not their heart. They wanted Paul to be wrapped up in the will of God. But they cared for Paul. They had a heart for Paul. Paul impacted their lives so much, he didn't, they didn't want to see Paul harmed or to suffer. And I think the Holy Spirit does both. I think the Holy Spirit compels. I think the Holy Spirit cautions as well. And Paul believed it was God's will. So he definitely takes the church's warnings and believed, yes, bonds and afflictions awaited for him. The warning received, but it did not dissuade him. It did not dissuade him. And look at verses 7 through 12. Paul's travels continue. It says, when he had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemus. And after greeting the brethren, we stayed with them for a day. On the next day, we left and came to Caesarea. And entering the house of Philip the evangelist, who was one of the seven, we stayed with him. Now this man had four virgin daughters who were prophetesses. As we were staying there for some days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. Coming to us, he took Paul's belt, bound his own feet and hands, and said, This is what the Holy Spirit says. In this way, the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When he had heard this, we as well as the local residents began begging him not to go to Jerusalem. While in Caesarea, Paul receives this word. Where is he? He's in the home of Philip, the evangelist, one of the, the seven. You remember when Philip got called by the church to serve? Who was with him? It was Stephen. And so how interesting, Paul finds himself in the home of one so dearly close to Stephen. He's in the home of Philip. No doubt, Paul probably got a big dose of, of church history as he is in Philip's home. And while there, this prophet Agabus comes and says that this one who owns the belt, Paul, will be bound by the Jews, delivered to the hands of the Gentiles, to the Roman authorities. So Paul is warned again, but he's not dissuaded. He's not dissuaded from believing that it's God's will for him to go to Jerusalem. And so look at his response to this in verse 13 and 14. Paul answers the prophet. In the church, he says, what are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart. For I'm ready not only to be bound, but even to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. No doubt the church wants Paul to do God's will. I believe that. 
Is there, there fear in them? I, I think so a little bit. I think there's some fear there. They're, they're concerned about his life. They loved Paul. And Paul right here, when he says, why are you weeping and breaking my heart? Literally, Paul's heart is crushed. Paul's heart is burdened. But why? Is he angry at them? I don't think so at all. Is he like, enough already with the warnings? <laughs> I get this. I'm going. I'm ready to suffer. I'm ready to die. I don't think so. I, th- I think Paul feels their pain. He makes sure that they know his heart is to boldly proclaim the gospel, but he wants them to know, hey, listen, I feel your hurt. My heart breaks because you're hurt of what, over, what, what, what could possibly happen to me in Jerusalem. So Paul aligns himself with their hurt, but he doesn't cause that to dissuade them to dissuade him to go. He's ready to go, no matter the cost, to boldly proclaim the gospel, even if it means death. Now, I want us to think about this for a second. Sometimes we have friends, even family members, in in our circles of life who will do what these disciples and and the church does here. They will come to us, and, and maybe we've been called to go on a mission trip, and maybe it's to a tough place that we're called to go take the gospel and, and they're concerned for our safety because it, there's risk. There's risk to our life. They're concerned about us and, and well-being, good intentions. But they'll come to us and, and try to dissuade us when we believe it's, it's God's will. I remember when we were in the adoption process of Eliana. Um, some would say, you got enough kids got three. I'm thinking, man, three's, three's I mean, that's kind of old, right? I mean, back in the day, people used 12 kids, so that doesn't, you know, <laughs> run anymore, right? Um, they got enough kids, or, or what are you going to do financially? And, and, and that just kind of can ride on you a little bit and, and maybe cause question or whatever, but when you feel like, oh, this is God's will, though. This is God's will, though. And sometimes it happens when we go to tough places, like I said. Good intentions. But we can't let those things stop us when we truly believe it is God's will. And Paul received these words as warning, but he was willing to face the risk. He was willing to suffer. And so look at the last verse in verse 15. Since he would not be persuaded, we fell silent. This is the church. I don't think they're bummed out here, right? I don't think they're like, all right. God's will be done. I don't think they're like, you know, down and out. I think they remark boldly with Paul and say, the will of the Lord be done. The will of the Lord be done. Meaning in this context, the gospel be taken to Jerusalem through the apostle Paul, no matter the price, no matter the cost. And they're with Paul. I love what Oswald Chambers says. He says, no healthy Christian ever chooses suffering. Instead, he chooses God's will, as Jesus did, whether it means suffering or not. And that's what Paul chose. He chose God's will, whether it means suffering for him or not. He's ready to go 
to take the gospel to Jerusalem, even if it leads to prison, even if it leads to death. And so it, asks, it bids the asking this morning for each of us, do we have that kind of passion as Paul has to take the gospel to our Jerusalem, right here, right where we're at, no matter the price? The thing is, many of us won't suffer taking the gospel to our Jerusalem here. Probably none of us would die doing it. But what about us? What about the passion that Paul has to take the gospel? And so who is the one that you're praying for? Who's the one that God has on your mind and your heart to invest and take the gospel to? The gospel is God's will that it would be taken to Jerusalem and to the uttermost parts of the world. And that was Paul's desire. But this text makes me ask a question this morning that I think helps understand even the context we're in and, and how there's a great need for us to have the spirit of Paul even today. And we have some time this morning. I, I want us to look at this. It, it's a problem. It, it's a problem that Paul would come up against. I think it's a problem in our world, and I think it's good to know the root. But there's an issue here in, in the text because the church is concerned, the disciples are concerned about Paul being bound up by the Jewish leaders and by being delivered over to the hands of Gentiles, to the Roman leaders. And so why are they concerned? What, what's the problem? that Paul is no doubt going to face, because we're going to see it at the end of chapter 21 until the end of this book, Paul will be bound up by the Jews. He will be delivered over to Roman authorities. He will be dragged around. He will be beaten almost nearly to death. He will be imprisoned. But here's one thing I do want you to know, is that in spite of all of that, the will of the Lord is done. In fact, if Paul was standing here today, he would say, it is on that road of suffering. It is the path, even under an emperor, eventually like, like Nero, the likes of that, that the gospel will find the hearts of lost souls. But what is the root cause? What's the problem that lies, I would say, at the Jewish leader's actions because they will beat him they will drag him around they will almost kill him and eventually he will be imprisoned but what we find at their in their heart i think speaks to our world today you think about these jewish leaders that paul's going to face when he goes into the temple in jerusalem you can read on and find that in the remainder of chapter 21. We'll get to it after Advent. But as you get to that, I think it's good to ask, what's at the heart of these Jewish leaders? These Jewish leaders, they felt threatened by Paul. They saw Paul's message of the gospel as grace, of the gospel of grace as tearing down the system of Judaism that they had so much pride in. Many of them had built up this system of religion they took pride in that. And he taught, Paul came teaching, that one is justified before God by faith alone, by grace alone, 
and that the gospel was for both Jew and Gentile. And that infuriated the Jews. You see, Jewish leaders were very much prejudiced against Gentiles. We'd call it racist against Gentiles, believing that they were inferior to them, that they were better than them. Even if a Gentile would come and and worship in a Jewish setting in the temple, they had their own little place where they could go and worship. And so definitely you see in their heart this feeling of, I'm better than you. I'm better than you. We see in them, no doubt, this prejudice, this racism. We see pride, we see greed, we see fear in these Jewish leaders. And you add that with lust as well in our present day. And this is the context, no doubt, we live in. I think even heightened recently by political scene and post-election, waiting for a new president and the rhetoric that goes on in our world through media, through politicians. And some of these things are inflamed in our day. And what we find at the root cause in the heart of these Jewish leaders is really in the heart of everyone who has never found the saving grace of Jesus Christ. As a result, the sins that we find in the Jewish leaders, the sins that we find of racism and pride and greed and fear and lust, they're embedded in social structures. Social institutions like entertainment, advertising, universities, businesses, politics, and even the church. It's present. And so what does that look like? Because I think Paul was so passionate that the gospel go to these in this condition. He knew it was the prevailing force that could overcome such darkness. And it still is today. At the heart of these that struggle with such sin is a heart of depravity. You see, apart from the grace of God, the Bible tells us all are sinners. All have exchanged the glory of God for his creation. Instead of worshiping God, they've chosen to worship creation instead of the creator. All are darkened in their understanding, the Bible tells us. All cannot accept the things of the Spirit of God because they are spiritually examined. That's the heart of the depraved. Those without the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Romans 8, 7 tells us the mind set on the flesh is hostile. Hostile. I think it's a big word. It's hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it's not even able to do so. That was the heart of the Jewish leaders. It's the heart of those dying in depravity. We're told we're slaves to sin. By nature, we are children of wrath. We read in Romans 1, the result of this, what is produced from this, the, the fruit of this. In chapter 1, verse 29, Paul tells us about those with depraved mind and depraved hearts. 
that they are filled with unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossipers. They are slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents. Can I, can I go back to inventors of evil? Have you never, I mean, isn't it amazing sometimes when you hear the things that happen in our day and you sit back and think, oh my word, how can one even imagine of doing such a crime? And that's what it is. It's the fruit of depravity. Inventors of evil. And we see it. We've seen it for centuries. They're without understanding. They're untrustworthy, unloving, and unmerciful. That's the depraved heart. Those without the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Titus 3.3 continues a list of depravity of once we were all like this, foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts, pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. You see, hostility toward God that comes from a depraved heart leads to hostility toward others. That's what Paul addressed in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14. Listen to what Paul says. He's talking about Christ, that Christ alone is our peace. He's talking to the church, and he's talking about what God's heart is to take Jews and Gentiles. And by the gospel of Jesus Christ, those who were separated by sin, to now through the gospel to be brought together. And listen what he says, that Jesus, our peace, has made both groups into one and he has broken down the barrier of the dividing wall. That barrier right there is the word literally hostility. He has broken down the hostility between peoples who once hated each other, groups who, who saw oneself as, as inferior to another. But the gospel brings people together. It gets rid of greed, fear, gets rid of prejudices, racism, you name it. It breaks it down. That's what Jesus does. But the depraved heart is hostile toward God. It's hostile toward others. I was reading an article this week by, by John Piper, and I felt like the last two weeks, you were kind of dry on Piper quotes, and so here we go. But listen to what, <laughs> but listen to what Piper writes. I, I love what he says about this idea of, of, of what is produced from the depraved heart, and, 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 and that he just eloquently puts it. Listen to what he says. He says, if we are malicious, how much more with those different from ourselves? If we murder, how much more those who are different? If we deceive, how much more the alien or the outsider? If we slander, how much easier it is to slander those who are different than us? If we are arrogant and insolent, how easier to exalt ourselves over those others we see as inferior? And if we hate, who better to hate than those not like us? You see, that's the depraved heart. That's what Jewish leaders so battled. They could not see past the differences with the Gentiles. And it enraged 
them. And their hostility to God and hostility to others. And then you add this. You have this depraved heart, but then comes in a power. And listen to what Ephesians 6.12 says. It says, our struggle is not against flesh and blood. We know that. But it's against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. You add the power of the enemy to a fallen condition of humanity's heart, and you have what we have today. See, the power of the enemy, he deceives the whole world, Revelation 12, 9 tells us. He is a liar. He is the father of lies, and he is deceiving many. He is the God of this world that has blinded the eyes of the unbelieving to the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. And so, as a result, what you have is the power of humanity and their depravity being compounded by this supernatural power that secures and intensifies the evil inside depraved hearts. And that's what we see today. That's why the Apostle John says in 1 John 5, 19, we know that we are of God. We know that. And that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Ephesians 2.2 tells us that the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working, is at work in the sons of disobedience, those with depraved hearts. Then it should not be a surprise to us that Satan works his purposes to steal, to kill, destroy through the different structures and institutions in our world today to cultivate misunderstanding to cultivate distrust, to cultivate biases, to cultivate partiality, to cultivate suspicion, ill will, antagonism, hostility, murder, lynchings, ethnic cleansing, holocaust, and genocide. Should we be surprised because of depraved hearts and the power of the enemy? It's real. And then it leads us to this. You have the depravity of man plus the power of the enemy, and it equals what we have today, and it's called this present evil age. That's what Paul called it. In Galatians 1, 4, he desires that Jesus, as he's writing to the church in Galatia, as he's introducing his letter, he says that Jesus might rescue us from this present evil age. An age marked by foolishness. An age that Paul says, praise the Lord, is passing away. And at the same time, it's an age that we should not love. We should not love this world. The Apostle John tells us. The root of it all is pride. Pride is woven into every institution in our day. It's in our hearts as man looks out for his own self-interest alone. In fact, back to the article I read this week by Piper, I love another thing he pulls out here, and I just want you to hear this. I love how he defines pride. And I think it hits, at least for your pastor this morning, in ways right between my eyes. It says, pride is the love of self-definition. Pride is the love of self-exaltation. 
Pride is the love of self-dependence. Pride is the love of superiority over others, including even God. Therefore, pride prefers being served over serving. Pride um, prefers being praised when strong over praising. Pride loves being pitied even when weak over pitying. Pride loves being respected over respecting others. At the bottom of pride's happiness is self, not God. God hates pride. He tells us that. Pride gives birth to greed. It gives birth to fear. It gives birth to the prejudices and the racism. Pride gives birth to lust. We see it reflected in our day. The different institutions in our day reflects and embodies, it even persevere, and it even advances these sins through many different ways, many different means. And so with that in mind, because that's the root heart of the Jewish leaders, it's our context. And so it leads me back to Paul. Paul knew this. Paul could have been afraid of this. No doubt. He could have been afraid of this. But I want you to to hear this. Paul did not fear man. One bit. I look up to Paul. If you were to ask me, why do you look up to Paul? There's a few reasons, but the top of the list is that one. He did not fear man. At the end of the day, he feared nothing. He feared nothing. His context and his circumstances around him, hanging off ships that are about to sink, I mean, you name it. He faced it. He feared none of it. Why? Because he feared God. He feared God. If you don't fear God, you will fear fear everything else. You will. But if you fear God, the fears of this world, the fear of man, the fear of what other people think, the fear of being threatened like the Jews felt. They felt threatened. That's why they responded the way they did. You're taking our ground, Paul. You're accepting people we don't like. They felt they were losing their ground in Jerusalem. They were fearful because they were hostile toward God and it produced hostility toward man. What are you afraid of? Fears are real. I never want to discount those. They're real. I think they should be addressed. I think they should be talked about. I think we should listen to them. I had my son come home. My oldest son came home the day after the election. And I share this because I hate this stuff. But he, he came home and he said, he goes, man, he said, some of my buddies are afraid. I said, afraid of what? He said, they're, they're afraid of 
of what might happen to them, you know, because they're Hispanic. I was like, what? What? They're, they're fine. They're going to be fine. They, they, they will be fine. He said, I know, but he said, just they're afraid. I'm like, man. And the rhetoric of our day, it stinks. <laughs> Many different levels. I hate the media. Uh, should I say that? I probably shouldn't say that. I, <laughs> I probably shouldn't say that. Um, but, I, but I hate what comes out of the media. I, ha- I hate it. But when you think about depraved heart, the power of the enemy, and you think about the present evil age that we live in, guys, I want you to see, it is embedded in every institution. We shall not be surprised. We should not be surprised. But here's what Paul would say. Don't be afraid, church. Don't shrink back. Don't grow weary. And look at the apostle Paul. Look what he did. What did he live for? The will of the Lord. What was the will of the Lord? That the gospel go to Jerusalem. Because that's the remedy. What's the remedy? It's Jesus. He's the only one that can take the depraved mind and the depraved heart and turn it into the mind of Christ. He's the only one that can do that. He's the only one that can take those who are malicious those who are hostile toward others because of differences, he's the only one who can flip that upside down, just like he did with the Apostle Paul, and turn somebody into someone who looks out for the interest of others above their own. That's what Jesus does. And that's what the church needs to speak about, is what Jesus can do, how Jesus can change hearts. The rhetoric today is loud. Let me warn you in joining in on it. But instead, as the Apostle Peter tells us, may we instead be a voice, a voice of hope, continually about Christ and about what he can do to change hearts. And at the same time, look into our own life and into our own hearts and to see what lies within here. And to ask the Lord, Lord, what about me? What sin must be defeated? What sin must die within me? And God, forgive me of that. Because that's the only way it will die and defeat is if Christ forgives it. He must forgive it. We want him to forgive us. So that we too will live, as Paul says, with the mind of Christ. Because it truly is the mind of Christ that ends pride that ends greed, that ends fear, that ends lust, that ends prejudices, racism, you name it, the list go on. Humility, servanthood, replaces pride and selfishness. Generosity replaces greed. Peace and contentment replaces fear. Purity and holiness replaces lust. And we need the mind of Christ. And Paul wanted to take that to every place he could lives would be changed. I pray today you're encouraged. I pray you look at the Apostle Paul and that you have a heart like him. That no matter what our context is, that we would take the gospel without fear. Without fear. That every little nook and cranny, 
to every person. That we would speak of Jesus and how he's changed our life. And how we were once foolish. We once had all these issues that we heard about this morning. We once were depraved. We once lied in the power of the enemy. But we know what has overcome our heart. We know what has overcome our life. And the rest of the world and our friends and our family, they need that too. They need Christ. Let me pray.